Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. As we finish year two and start year three of Pioneers and Pathfinders, I thought we'd pause and reflect on what we've learned from talking to almost 100 changemakers in the profession. Before doing that, however, I'd like to offer my heartfelt thanks to a number of people. First, and most obviously, our guests who have taken the time to share their perspectives and personal journeys with us. I hope it has been as educational for each of you as it has been for me. Second, thanks to each of you for taking the time to listen to the podcast. I'm conscious that your time is valuable and appreciate you taking some of that valuable time to listen in to the conversations. Third, and finally, I'd like to thank the team at SciFarth that helps put the podcast on. The current fabulous team of Ethan, Cheryl, and Jenny provide invaluable assistance. And of course, their predecessor, Molly Porter, who was there at the beginning. Although Molly's professional journey has taken her in a different direction, I'll always be thankful for her work getting this thing off the ground. And she only forgot to push the record button once. And a special shout out to my friend and longtime assistant, Kristen Meany, who keeps us on the straight and narrow. As I look back over the past two years of guests, I marvel at the diversity of backgrounds and perspectives, different generations, different paths, different areas of focus, from legal ops to legal tech to law education, working in the A to J space, attorney well-being, and others. We've covered a lot of ground. Obviously, we cannot recap everything we discussed over the past two years. But as we think about change in the profession, certain themes seem to emerge from the conversations. For these purposes, though, let's focus on the corporate legal landscape. My thesis is simple. That landscape has become more complex over the past few years, complexity only fueled by the pandemic. Now, we tend to extol the virtues of simplicity, and rightly so, but complexity has its own virtue, opening both organizational and individual opportunities. Managing complexity is its own challenge, however. In talking to our pathfinders, certain themes repeat themselves as markers of success, and that is going to be the focus of today's retrospective. Let's start at the beginning, however. Some things do and should remain the same. Take the big pin as an example. If you looked at a big pin from 70 years ago, it would look remarkably like a big pin sold today. Now, I'm sure there's some manufacturing improvements, but the design and functionality has remained the same. Yes, the company's introduced other style of pins, but the classic big pin is an homage to the adage, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. There's some people who still believe that the legal industry is more like the big pin, stalwart in its unchanging nature. For example, Alpen Wild has been surveying private law firm management and corporate legal management for 15 years. They recently added two questions to the law firm survey, which I thought were interesting. The first simply asked law firm leaders to assess the change in the environment in which law firms compete. On a scale of 10, 83% rated the change as moderate or high. They then asked, also on a scale of 10, how much law firms have actually changed compared to the amount of change that was needed. 76% gave the firms low to woefully inadequate scores. When asked why, firms gave answers with which we're all familiar. Partner resistance, not feeling enough economic pain, etc. And truth be told, there are powerful forces that still resist change in the legal industry. I'm going to touch on five. First, law is a human capital business. We make revenue based on the hours humans devote to a legal problem, let's be honest with ourselves, and we scale profits and revenue by adding more timekeepers. Technology has been and certainly will continue to change this dynamic by allowing services to be scaled in ways other than simply by brawn. 
Zach Abramowitz of Killer Whale Strategies talked about this in the context of the capabilities of ChatGPT. I think that 4.0 is not necessarily going to make us forget ChatGPT, but you're going to go, wow, that's even more specific. So someone who's looking at ChatGPT right now and says, oh, I, I asked it to draft a demand letter. It didn't really, like, it, it did it okay, but I, as a trained attorney, can look at this, and I, 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 of course, see things that I would change about that. Very impressive that it drafted a demand letter, or very impressive that it drafted a cease and desist, or, but I would still probably change it a little bit. I think that with GPT-4, you're going to see less of that. You're going to see people saying, there was really no difference between how I would have done this and how the machine did it. The second factor is the continued importance of relationships. Building on the prior point, interpersonal relationships remain a key to the profession. But the impact of the pandemic and the move to the virtual world has challenged many of our underlying notions. As we move back into the hybrid world, I think of Manar Morales, CEO of the Diversity and Flexibility Alliance, and her thoughts about managing this challenge. I've said during the pandemic, it's not my saying, but it was a saying that resonated with me during the pandemic, a quote that I heard around, you know, we're all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. And that really was something that we had to wrap our heads around that for some leaders who come to me and say, I am so anxious to get back. I'm so excited about getting back. I have to remind them that coming back to the office is causing some people to be anxious and that we have to be thinking about how do we look at this, not just from our own personal view of whether we think we can work from home or we work better in an office to What's the business model that's going to take us into the future five to 10 years from now? And those are the firms that are having those conversations that are being more successful at this. Take us out of the immediate of an excitement to want to be back, to see faces. We all want that. We've all been isolated. And that desire for human connection is something that a lot of people crave. That doesn't mean that that influences what that model needs to be right? for where we go and what's the best model to take us into the future. The third factor that jumps to mind is lawyers' inherent resistance to change. We all know, of course, that as a general proposition, lawyers are resistant to change. And no one described this better than Dr. Larry Richard. We seek and accept change only very cautiously because it it carries some threat with it. That's people in general. Lawyers are even more resistant to change. So what do you do to overcome that resistance to change and the fact that you have an environment with all of the contextual signals that are telling us to keep doing things the way we're doing them? Precedent is the heart of legal thinking. We're trained to rely on the way things have been done before. And that extends just from legal analysis of court cases to how we lead our lives. So that's another component that's keeping us very stable. And then How do you take people who, and I'm talking about big law here, how do you take people who are basically earning several million dollars a year and tell them that the way they're doing things is wrong and they've got to change? There are economic incentives to keep doing things the way we've been doing them. So all of that taken together makes it a very, very challenging thing to produce change. But it can be done. Fourth, there's a belief that we are artisans. In Richard Susskind's new book, Tomorrow's Lawyers, Third Edition, He talks about giving speeches about the impact of technology and says that routinely he'll have attendees come up after the presentation. 
and while agreeing vociferously with his point, will equally vociferously argue that their practice area is unique in this regard. Put another way, as Lucy Basley of NO Law Group told us, Lawyers know how to do their work their way. So you know, lawyers move forward by looking backward, right? And so that's our, that's our value prop. Our entire professional value prop is we're excellent precedent decipherers, right? Yes. yes. Um, and applicators of, of precedent. Finally, and as almost a summary point, law is a lacking indicator of change. We look forward by looking backward. We are trained to search for and to try to mitigate risk. No one described this dynamic better than Nicole Black of my case. Well, lawyers are, I believe, we're unique. I think we we all like to think we're unique. We're a little egotistical as a group as a whole. But I do think lawyers are unique. They are precedent-based. You know, everything that we do, we look back to see what uh, has been done and said before. So lawyers do tend to respect precedent and they also risk averse. You know, we kind of, that's our job. We're risk averse. We advise our clients of all the horrible things that can possibly go wrong and try to protect them from all of those eventualities. And we also are very analytical and we like to think we're not emotional decision makers. I think that most lawyers ultimately at the end of the day kind of are, but don't realize that they are. But all of those things make it difficult to convince lawyers to change. You know, they always look backwards and they are um, analytical. So you have to make a good case for change and you also have to help them with the change. You know, it's not easy to change. Change management in law firms is difficult. You have to get everyone on board and you have to transfer all the data. And so you want to do what you can to ease that uh, transition as well. Now, there's no question that these forces impede change and certainly slow down the progression of change in the industry but they're equally powerful and inexorable forces driving change. Of course, there has been for decades a global economy and the forces of globalization, but this is not just economic. It's cultural and regulatory diversification as well. The wonderful Bill Henderson shared with us his insights in this area. We've become a much more legal, regulated, interconnected, globalized society. Every time a business goes over a boundary, it creates legal complexity. And then we've digitized things. And so you you have this need for more and more law. And actually, the customers have gotten bigger. And so the customers have, as they've gotten bigger, they need more legal needs. They've imported some of the law firm talent into growing basically in-house legal departments that are basically oftentimes the size of major law firms embedded inside corporations. That's a new phenomenon. Big law is slowly having to adapt a four-generation model to become more efficient. And, you know, this is what's lead to like legal zoom and the people law sphere, the opposite of big law. But it's all having to do with more with less, using technology, process, data to do it. But, you know, Steve, this will take three generations to, you know, it's so slow moving that we, we accuse it of no progress being made here. It's going to take my career and your career and one more career, and then we'll be done. Second factor driving change is emerging technology. This drives change in a few ways. Of course, there's the tech itself and the growing investment in technology solutions. But the promise of the impact of technology on the profession has drawn new thinkers into different roles. For example, increased investment in legal tech had a direct impact on David Wang, Chief Innovation Officer of Wilson Sonsini, who talks about it in his episode. My interest actually coincided with, I think, basically the Cambrian explosion of legal tech. And I think the stat is something like, and don't quote me, but, you know, I think 2015 or 2016, it was something like $85 million of investment into legal tech. And I think last year, if you counted investment and exit, it was something like $9.1 billion. And so there's been kind of the sea change in the industry and this nascent thing called legal technology, legal operations, and kind of these related areas. 
you know, or quote like new law. So along with that, I, I've kind of evolved from being first an associate that's just particularly interested. I spent a good amount of time learning about this and talking to people about it to being known as the person that was the most expert at this in the firm, kind of like almost like a practice specialty, spending a lot of my time on it and then eventually running some projects as an associate and then kind of got management's attention. And we had a particular need at that time. So that's when I created our first innovation titled job for myself. I think it was like Corporate Strategic Innovation Council or something like that. Looked at another way, Haley Altman of Latera talked to us about raising money for legal tech. I heard countless pitches, countless pitches and listened to VCs debate like what companies they were going to fund and things like that. And so I had a real sense of like, how do you tell the story of your business? And I think a lot of people, you know, they're like, I have this great idea and that's it. And you're going to want to invest in it. You're going to want to buy it. And that's it because it's an important thing. And I know what I'm doing. And I realized that there's more to this art of like storytelling. And it, it applies when you're raising capital, when you're trying to hire people, when you're selling to customers, and when you're helping customers implement your system. And the story has an overarching theme that applies to everyone. But the audience is different. So the message and what they need is different. So I went in to raising capital with like a totally different perspective than most people who are raising capital for the first time. So we raised $2.3 million in less than 30 days, no product. At evaluation, that was probably a too high. Next, there's a new generation of leaders who are metric-driven, tech-facile, among other things. There's no better example of this than my old friend and colleague, Jay Um. In this excerpt, she talks about one of her many ventures, her involvement with Luminate Plus, which is a startup focused on delivering a different kind of educational content for a different landscape for the profession. Let's listen in to Jay. I've spent most of my career with management, with law firm management on business of law issues. And, and um, you know, the last few years, I've thought more and more about what is happening to the world. We are in a very precarious kind of scary feeling place. I mean, science and technology are getting away from us in many ways. And the regulatory framework, I think, is deteriorating. And so, you know, I've come around to this conviction, although I've always been a, a great ally of, and defender of lawyers. But I, I think lawyers are more important than ever. If humanity is to survive the fourth industrial revolution, we need really, really good lawyers. And then so I worry about the, the training and learning and development of young lawyers. And then so I've taken an interest more and more about how do we prepare lawyers to practice differently in a world that is, is fundamentally changing. Next, we continue to see lines blur between disciplines. No group of organizations has done a better job of drawing on the strength of multidisciplinary practices than the big four and their continued impact into the legal profession. But it's now common to talk about in the profession the use of data scientists, pricing specialists, legal architects, etc. And no area has been more significant to the evolution of the corporate legal landscape than the growth of legal ops specialists. While numbers in the latter category are tough to find, you can take clock as a marker. From a start in 2015, where they had about 579 members, to Q1 of 2022, where they had 4,500 members, they were up 732%. The clock origin story is best told by Stephanie Corey, one of the founders of clock and now co-founder of Uplow Lops, who shared it with us in her episode. I saw that there was a lot to be done and that we could do a lot as a group. And I saw that we could do a lot together. 
And honestly, even founding Clock was really about reaching out to colleagues because when you're doing legal operations, especially if you're the only person running legal operations within a corporation, you're the only person in that whole company who does what you do. Exactly. Right. You don't have a counterpart. And so the only way to figure out how you can do your job better. And that's one of the things business school really teaches you. Everything is done in groups because you're better with bigger numbers and uh, and with other people giving you ideas and, you know, and just brainstorming. And so that's really how we founded Clock was really just all about reaching out to other people to see what else others were doing and how we could leverage each other's best practices and knowledge. And so honestly, it was really one of those things where you wake up 20 years later and and you're kind of like, wow, okay, this became a whole thing. And it makes sense. And every other industry has it, right? Every industry has operations to some degree. And so it, it was only a matter of time before legal had it as well. The final point to address are new entrants into the market, taking up space left by law firms reticent to change their business model. Other organizations have looked for opportunities to peel off market share. 20 years ago, for example, we would never have heard the term ALSP. Yet in 2022, the market for ALSPs is estimated to be $16 billion, with expectations to grow to $25 billion by 2028. Gunnar Chopra, now of Elevate, was there at the beginning and talks about some of the factors that led to the acceptance of ALSPs in her episode. There's so many reasons for that growth. And I'd say one is if you just look at the traditional law firm model. And so law firms, their model has been based on the billable hour. And with that, they focus on billing hours, right? And so there hasn't been kind of an incentive or efficiency really built into the model. And so when you look at the early 2000s, where you had the first iteration of law companies coming into the space, you know, they were looking at point solutions around how to take certain pieces of legal services and do them in a more efficient way, right? And so you saw e-discovery and document review. When I started LawScribe, it was, you know, how do we use labor arbitrage to provide services in a more efficient manner, right? Efficiency meant outsourcing to a lower cost geography. It was labor arbitrage. It was creating some process around it, layered with some technology. Then it kind of evolved into, you know, more technology um, and insights. We started to be called legal service providers or alternative legal service providers. Now we have more data and analytics. We're actually, through insights, providing more advice around how law departments and law firms can operate more efficiently. And so... You know, I think a lot of the reasons have been, one, law firms kind of abdicated a lot of these types of services and opportunities to companies like ours to come in. We started using technology in a more effective and efficient way. We really were customer focused and and we were incentivized to do so because customers also had their own pressures. and, And ultimately, they are the ones who influence kind of how this industry has evolved. They started using law companies because their budgets were under pressure. They needed to figure out how to do things better and more effectively. You know, companies needing to figure out how to how to do more with less. And so companies like ours came about, saw an opportunity and through right sourcing, through better use of technology, through better use of process and analytics, have been able to create and take a big piece of this pie in the legal industry. Put all this in the blender and what comes out. What has this meant for the corporate legal industry? Well, 20 years ago, the landscape was largely corporate law departments and private law firms. To the extent there was change, it was the growth and increasing sophistication of legal departments. It felt complicated, but in truth, it was a simpler time. The corporate legal sector looks very different today. Yes, in-house legal departments and private law firms are primary, but they're no longer the exclusive drivers of service delivery. They're joined by LSPs, law companies, the big four, 
with the new profession, legal ops professionals, putting it all together differently. And of course, overriding all of this is the impact of technology. This is only a part of the broader legal ecosystem, which reflects its increased complexity. Government lawyers, legal aid, law schools, etc., are but a few additional parts of a complex and complicated profession. Facing our profession are equally complex and complicated issues, far beyond simply the way in which legal services are delivered, which is apparently more complicated than one would think. Many of these roads lead us to ask the question, what does it mean to be a lawyer and what will it mean in the future? These are not simple issues and there are no simple or obvious answers. As someone who has spent the better part of 20 years using Lean Six Sigma concepts to simplify legal processes, I understand the value of simplicity. But the truth is that complexity and the ability to harness it is increasingly important for legal organizations to function in a changing environment and for people to find different and meaningful careers in the industry. This presents a great opportunity for innovative lawyers, I think. New models for delivering legal services continue to emerge. Technology, whether labeled legal tech or not, continues to invade the space. One need look no further than the current fever debate over ChatGPT. Collaboration between various types of service providers has created different ways of delivering value to end users. In a legal landscape where process managers, legal ops professionals, data scientists, to name a few, play increasingly critical roles in service delivery, the lawyer's role is changing. This presents opportunity like never before. From a career standpoint, it means that we've moved from a career ladder, a typically linear path, to more of a lattice, the ability to move up, down, sideways, and to find new, if more complicated, paths. From a design standpoint, we have more tools available than ever before to add value and respond to lawyers' needs. One thing I've learned from doing the Pioneers and Pathfinders podcast and talking to our wonderful guest is that successfully navigating these waters and taking advantage of these opportunities requires a different mindset. I encourage you to think of it in five dimensions. First is belief. We have to accept that the world is changing and have a belief that we can use these changes to deliver different and better results for our clients. I've heard this theme consistently for those who have been guests on Pioneers and Pathfinders. They may not know precisely the path they're following, but they have a belief that there can be a better way. Let's listen in to Imani Smathers' talk on this point. So I went to law school at Michigan State University College of Law. I did go there thinking I might specialize in intellectual property. When I was at MSU, I happened to be incredibly lucky and overlapped with two young associate professors, Professor Daniel Martin Katz and Professor Renee Knocky Jefferson. And they had put some posters up for a London study abroad program. And I thought, that sounds cool. I could find out about London study abroad program, get some free pizza, um, you know, nothing to lose. And what I had no idea I was in for was a lesson on the Legal Services Act in the UK that was parts of it were taking effect in that year, 2012, was the first alternative business structures were licensed in the UK. And I got this lesson about the re-regulation of the UK legal services market that was happening and learning about that. And I just remember sitting there and thinking about the changes that were happening in the UK legal service market, you know, eating free pizza and thinking, wow, if that's happening now in the UK, something like that's going to happen in the US during my legal career, during the next few decades. So I want to know about this. I want to know what could be coming. So I ended up taking a couple weeks off of my law firm summer job that year 
and going to London with Professor Katz and Professor Kanaki. And it was you know, my introduction to legal innovation and legal services, delivery and data and technology ideas that were happening in the UK, but also starting to happen in the US. And so we got just a crash course on legal innovation and, and the re-regulation that was happening and all the innovation that was coming out of it. And I got hooked. So I was in the first class of the reInvent Law program at Michigan State. So the four pillars of reInvent Law were law, technology, design, and delivery. And I think those are still pillars of my career that has come out of that. As you said, it, it did kind of start with some free pizza. The second trait that consistently appears is curiosity. Curiosity, I think, is undervalued. Research shows that being curious leads to fewer decision-making errors, more innovation, reduced group conflict, and better team performance. Yet in a survey in a wide range of industries, 70% of people reported barriers to curiosity. As we are more than ever in a team sport, nurturing your inner curious cat is the key to success. Ivy Gray of WordRake summarized this perfectly. I think curiosity is actually the foundation of innovation. If you aren't curious, you're not going to solve the right problems and the solutions that you come up with are not going to be very deep. If it's easy and if it's obvious, then you're not going very far and you're not changing very much. You need to get at the root of the problem and come up with a different way to solve it. You have to zig when others zag and curiosity gives you the ability to do that. Third, applying creativity is key. Now, being creative is important. I, I'll give you that. But the point I want to make is that it's the application that's critical. It's the willingness to apply creativity to achieve results. You can think of the next great tech idea, and that's wonderful. But unless it can be applied and adopted by users, it remains just that, a great idea. Alma S.A. talks about her experience in this regard. I actually would disagree with the idea that the sale is the hardest part. What I learned the hard way is the sale is almost the easy part. We had some eye-opening moments early on where we would make the sale and think, okay, we sold them the technology. Amazing. They're going to go off. They're going to use it. They're going to see the value and did not appreciate the change management journey at all. And when I would look back, it always was because we didn't engage in that adoption journey with them. That to me is the hardest part of innovation and having a legal tech company. It's okay. How do I actually get lawyers to use this and make it sticky? Fourth is the ability to collaborate radically. What do I mean by that? I mean that working with different skill sets is not what comes naturally to most lawyers, but there's a huge value in collaborating with allied professionals. Let me give you an example, which I think is fabulous. Dave Cunningham talked to us about why he hired an anthropologist to run Reed Smith's Innovation Lab. Cool, right? Let's listen to Dave describe it. We recognize that there's a lot of us here that already know legal and legal technology. And so hiring, you know, the 3000 and first person who knows legal and technology and has, has been here forever is very incremental. And so we really wanted to hire someone who understands why we do things and how we think about that, how we are open to change and how we evolve. And so uh, we, we wanted someone who wasn't already. I mean, so I would, I would say there's two things. There's being outside of legal and being an anthropologist. I think both of those were assets to us. And so we wanted someone who had 
uh, perspective in professional services, but maybe has in some ways seen the future, seen what we could be if, if we weren't doing things like every other firm. And the anthropology angle is uh, being able to have a what she would call a human-centered design process where we're not looking at systems and data and processes. We're really thinking about the human in the middle to say, how do we change things so they center around the human that we're trying to help and really be able to study us and, and learn and observe and, and use more psychology and sociology to sit back and look at, look at the machine we're trying to improve. And so it's, it's been great. And finally, and this is almost as a summary point, the challenge is to be bold. As lawyers, we're trained to look for everything that can go wrong and to build safeguards. We aim for perfection in building different careers or different delivery models or taking advantage of these various tools. We have to be willing to challenge ourselves and be willing sometimes to take a step into the unknown. The future is upon us, and for those bold enough to seize it, the opportunities are endless. Thanks for listening. Now on to year three. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.